Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Mountain Stories podcast. My name is Brent Olson. I'm one of the directors of the Institute for Mountain Research here at Westminster College in Salt Lake City. Our goal for the Institute is to connect people to mountains, to share the stories of the people who live, work, and play in them, and to build a mountain community that is thoughtful, reflective, and engages with difficult questions of the day. As part of that mission, this year, we've been really honored to collaborate with Dr. Shomei Pu on her project's Mountains and Stories, Building Community Among Asian Refugees and Immigrants. You can learn more about what this project is all about and hear some of the previous conversations we've had in episodes that come before this one. You'll get a sense of the range of voices of the Asian community here in Salt Lake City and some of the great work that's happening. So today, we're excited to share another one of those conversations with you. Our guest today is uh, Nikki Navio. She was born on Panay Island in the Philippines and moved to Alaska when she was young. Uh, she moved to U- Utah just about two years ago in the summer of 2000. She works as an urban planner with Wasashi Front Regional Council. She helps with the regional transportation plan that prioritizes transportation mobility investments over the next 30 years in the Wasashi Front. My name is Nikki Navio. I am uh, you know, Filipino-American. Uh, I was born in the Philippines on an island called Panay. My parents are both from there, uh, grew up in uh, very rural uh, villages um, on this island, which is like in the central part of, of the country. I yeah, immigrated to the United States when I was seven years old. So I still have a lot of family that uh, live in the Philippines and I have you know, a very strong connection to um, my culture and familial tie- ties that I have with, um, with the country and the place I was born. Um, and then my parents, so I grew up in Alaska um, and that's where my family ended up kind of just, um, you know, was immersed, like growing up in Anchorage, uh, you're kind of surrounded by mountains basically everywhere. So uh, that's really, although like the farm that my parents uh, grew up in and in the countryside was very hilly, I think the um, experiences that I had living in Alaska uh, really shaped the way that how I view the world and also with the guidance from my from my family and their relationship to the land. Now I'm an urban planner. Uh, I became, I studied um, urban planning and I focus primarily on transportation and looking at ways for people to uh, travel more efficiently in and around uh, the Wasatch Front mostly, working for a metropolitan planning organization called the Wasatch Front Regional Council, which is, yeah, we help plan um, the regional transportation system around here and look out 30 years into the future with, you know, working with uh, elected officials and partners uh, to make sure that it's sustainable and provides opportunities for access for communities. I moved to Utah a couple of years ago, just less than less than two years ago. And I think the big draw of living here of, or wanting to live here was 
uh, a lot of of those same feelings that that you have growing up in a place that is really close to the mountains and really close to um, you know just like even the the comfort that you get from seeing the mountains time to time it just conjures up the like same experience that I think when I was like a young person and spending time at my parents' farm in the village uh, and also growing up in Alaska, it just conjures up those same feelings of, of home and, and being in the right place. Uh, when you lived in Alaska, did you live in a big like a Filipino, uh, Filipino-American community where, uh, where your family, the only family, um, from the Philippines, yeah. living in that community, and uh, how did that affect you uh, growing up? In Alaska, there's actually a huge concentration of Filipino Americans. It's actually got the largest Filipino American population per capita in the United States, comp- like if you compare it to other states. Um, so there's a huge history. Uh, Filipinos are actually called like Alaskeros. Uh, it's just like Filipino Alaskans, <laughs> um, and there's a yeah, it's really strong connection of of people um, who would go fish. You know, like right when when um, Filipinos were um, under American col- like colonization, people were able to come here and get different jobs. And as part of those as part of those like set of jobs, a lot of it was like working through the canneries in uh, Alaska. So there's a really there's actually a huge Filipino population and in Anchorage there's several Filipino organizations and and communities. You find communities that are also uh, like from the same area that you um, your family might be from in uh, like in the Philippines, which is really cool. <laughs> so um, and and it's great like uh, the. My parents speak, there's 170 different dialects um, on the islands. So I mostly speak the dialect that, that my parents speak, which is uh, Ilongo or Hiligaynon. And, uh, and then so there were some people that were also, when I was growing up, were around and kind of spoke to that, but just a broader community, which, which was just really, really great. Participating in that community uh, you know, just helps with retaining that those cultural values even if it's um whether it's like through dancing or filipino parties <laughs> i would also say that i went to an alternative school when i moved to alaska so it's like an open optional program which i don't really know how to describe it but the but the program is very yeah, goal oriented and uh, and and it's yeah open optional. So it, it means like the people that go there, you have to choose to go to that to that school, um, and and it's also based on a lottery system. So someone had recommended after I moved when I moved at seven years old, my mom. I went to a, a private school, and but then someone had recommended that we you know, you should send your children to this school. And, and then that's how kind of how I ended up there. But this school was predominantly very white. Um, so I think it was very white, but it was also like really focused a lot on 
spending time outside. Uh, we would spend classes where we would write and journal outside. Yeah, do kayaking trips, like learn how to cross-country ski or like, you know, there's there's all kinds of activities. And really the goal is to get you to um, be more long-term thinking about growth. So it's not based on grades but per se, but thinking of how you can contribute and to society and make your community better and also, yeah, like find ways to be considerate of the environment. And so I think those two, having those two areas, the school environment and then your like broader community environment really shapes the way that you view the world because because I think there's a lot of overlap there, but also very different values. I don't know. I, I think uh, the education program or at least like I, there's a lot of value in, in thinking about the environment and, and protecting the environment. And, and I think that when I was going to school, it was very much in that kind of mindset, uh, which is very different from the way that I think my parents viewed it. They were like, I was just thinking about like how they how they viewed things with a farm and, and just like very specific examples. But maybe they're more anecdotal and I don't really know if I can summarize it in a broader <laughs> scale. Yeah, uh, my Parents um, are rice farmers, uh, and their um, concept of nature and concept of uh, the land um, are so different from mine. Um, yes, I primarily view nature as, uh, from the perspective of philosophy and uh, aesthetics and uh, poetry, uh, the place uh, where we live, uh, but they um, see nature uh, sometimes like weeds, right? <laughs> so they grow uh, rice and uh, they grow vegetables. So they, they see nature in a very narrow sense, like uh, weeds. The weeds are weeds and they are at odds with the crops they grow. And um, they see the land as uh, the place where they can um, grow crops uh, to feed um, their family, feed us, as well as to make a living. My mom sees bamboo as very invasive, very undesirable, because mm -hmm. bamboo drops leaves on the uh, roof, and it ruins the roof. So <laughs> uh, she hates bamboo, but I love bamboo. <laughs> <laughs> so, because I see how oh, bamboo are so beautiful and um, uh, they're everywhere and they're so resilient and uh, they're associated with the quantity of uh, traditional um, intellectuals, right? Um, perseverance, resilience, uh, and things like that. So. I completely understand uh, how the views you have learned from the school, the alternative school, might be different from uh, your parents' views of the environment and nature. Yeah, and it's really interesting because, yeah, my parents both, their parents, you know, didn't go to school past the sixth grade, um, and then 
obviously their my parents' generation kind of moved a little bit past that. And then now they're actually going back. They've been going back the last few years because we still have um, some farmland. We, they also grow rice and trying to rebuild that because uh, since my grandmother passed away uh, like 15 years ago, um, there's no really no one to carry on a lot of the things that were growing and and a lot of the traditional like it's just like the native rice like there's a lot of different rice varieties right like and a lot of those uh rice varieties that were like local to the area are completely gone now and my mom and dad would just I think when I was younger would talk about these like fantastical stories of how you know the sapat which is like the creek uh would would just be teeming with crabs and you can pick them out and you know take them home or or fish that were growing or yeah just like in the pond and, and as everything is just like full of life and I've seen every single time I go back like how much it's changes over time and and I think that they both have uh, this vision of going back there and returning back to their roots to make sure that a lot of this tradition gets carried, you know, carried on that uh, I don't think people really want to because it, we're so like westernized now. I don't know if that's the norm <laughs> for a lot of um, Filipino families. I like usually it's kind of like a more backward frame of mind, but uh, yeah. And and I think growing up in a in like a household where my parents were like, yeah, you should go travel, take time to go do all these kinds of things and make sure that like, like education is really important. But a lot of it is also street smarts <laughs> and, and, you know, learning things by doing the things. I think that's shaped a lot of the way I've viewed the world and how I've kind of approached stuff that's happened in my life. Yeah, it's really interesting to like see my the way my parents have kind of circled back in in their life to, back to where they kind of left, you know, when they left home to yeah, returning to to hoping for that same kind of uh relationship again with with the land. Yeah, that that farming like tie that my family has and re really relying on 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 the food to like yeah like it's kind of the same story that you were saying where your your parents farmed to get you know give you a good education and all these things I think for me now like um I'm kind of on the other side where yes we've attained like higher education and that's kind of the western norm for success or whatever you call it but I think like my intention is is now to spend some time trying to understand uh, what those things like the, those things that the, my parents value, and also try to encapsulate that in in the ways that I also approach things. So like, you know, I've been spending a lot more time uh, doing more urban farming and uh, like trying to raise um, my own food 
yeah, growing a vegetable and, and trying to share that with, with people whenever I can, um, have chickens. Uh, so we talk a lot of my relationship with my family now and my parents actually revolves around like growing food and, and this aspect of, yeah, this just this relationship with, with the land now, because I think that's one way where it's very different scales and sometimes it's very uh, different environments. <laughs> but I think that's one way that we can talk about nature because the way that I do a lot, yeah, hiking, biking, like, you know, all the things that I think are more of the ways that you go outside and, and maybe get exercise and stuff like that. But I, I, it's, it's a little bit harder to talk about that in a broader sense with, um, especially from people within other communities. Uh, and so I think food is really important and like everyone knows what an apple is or everyone knows what a carrot is or like you have these basic, this basic relationship with food and, and that food comes from, from the land, which you grow it on. So now a lot of my focus has been to try and be like intentional about, about the food I'm growing and also sharing that experience with my parents as they're trying to rebuild this farm, which is, you know, thousands of miles away. But but somehow it, it makes me feel more connected with what's happening because they're willing to share as I'm sharing, you know, what I'm going through and the kind of the smaller scale struggles <laughs> I have of you know, like this vegetable isn't doing this or like this chicken did this today. And <laughs> I think um, those those little stories add up to to like how we how we view um, our food and our land. There's a ton of different traditions. I think just like I don't know, a lot of it is really centered on food, sharing recipes, which is most of the time it's it's just like it's not actually a recipe. It's they, my parents may be saying like, you add like a dab of salt here, or, you know, it's not written down or just sharing those, that experience. Yeah, one thing that I like to uh, do with my family is actually like cook with them and, and trying to get to know like those stories that came with, oh yeah, you're Lola, my grandmother didn't actually like adobo or something like like this dish but or this relative is a really good you know preparer of this kind of this kind of food i think it's it's just really nice to to hear that and also like be comforted by by those because they're not stories that ever really change so it's like kind of nice to be comforted by by those kinds of of things my parents often often like I think not just my parents, but my, I'm really close to like one aunt in particular, and they will go on and on about how things used to be. Uh, and like I was saying earlier, how it's just like they have all these kinds of stories of, of living and growing up on, on the farm and having back in the day, and even now there's actually no road there's I mean there's a dirt road that goes out to their to to their village uh, of Malublub 
there's not as many farmers because so many people have have moved to the city, especially from my parents' generation. And also like, so there's a lot of of that yearning that I see come through from from them. And my for me, that yearning translates to like me wanting to also like be more intentional of how I approach urban farming or, you know, getting outside because it's just the the thought that sometimes things aren't as static as you think they will be. And there's a change will probably come whether you'd like it or not. (laughs) Yeah. Are farmers respected uh, in the community? So where I grew up, farmers are not respected, you know, and in the U.S., farmers are rednecks, right? Yeah. So they do derogative language associated with farming. Uh, although uh, we environmentalists respect, you know, um, alternative farming, like organic farming, small-scale farming um, deeply, uh, but um, oftentimes it is not the case in the broader uh, society. So um, my question is, yes, so are farmers, what is the social status of farmers? I think it's very much the same as um, what you would find like in China or here in the United States. The farmers don't have, farmers in Filipino society, I would say, it's very low in in like uh, in terms of their profession um, in ranking. Like, and it's really interesting because my grandfather, who was kind of farming this small plot of land that my parents are rebuilding now, he was the oldest of twelve children, and all the other children, I guess, except for some of the sisters. Like the other men in the family went on to live in the city or actually have a great uncle that lives in Virginia, who was like my grandfather's youngest brother. They ended up in very different places. And and I think if you're a farmer, I think it's in in the community and like the culture there. It's you. yeah, you're just not as um, respected or it's just more seemed as like a deemed as like a lower class job. You're spending time outside, therefore you get darker, um, which, of course, there's a lot of like history of colorism associated with that. And and so, yeah, it's I don't think it's viewed by the masses as uh, something that you aspire to it's it's definitely not a like profession that people seek out which i think has caused people to leave their communities but by doing that we're losing a lot of that those practices i think that and in the traditional foods that people were once cultivating yeah don't necessarily exist anymore yeah and i hope that uh will change someday and I know that uh, there has been a movement, uh, uh, even though they, I think they're not visible um, to the general population, but there has been movement uh, going on, maybe underground, <laughs> um, 
outside of the reader um, of people's awareness uh, that uh, BIPOC communities, you know, are involved in you know, reconnecting with the land and uh, returning to uh, farms and become a new generation, maybe a new generation of farmers who is really informed of social injustice and environmental injustice and have been trying their best to correct that. So I hopefully um, sometime uh, as time goes on, like, I hope those efforts will become very visible um, to the general public, and there may be a sort of like a paradigm shift in thinking about farming and uh, you know uh, connecting to the land. I think it's so wrong. It's just to disrespect those who work with the land, right? So. Um, Without their labor, we won't have the food to eat. Yeah, definitely. Very, very true. And I think that my parents have, because their families are, are farmers and um, you know, come from this background of not living in the city, it's, it's very removed from where I am, like in Utah and Alaska, but at the same time, so much of that perspective, them being so close to the land actually has really shaped the way I perceive my relationship to the land. So I think it's important. And and it's unfortunately like tragic that people don't see that connection as often or not just here, but yeah, like there in the Philippines, like it's not, you know, as as valued if you're a fisherman or a farmer. Yeah, and I hope that more, more people will come to recognize that. And I think that just maybe more people who, yeah, end up in, in cities and realizing that some some ways it's a little bit easier to like work with. I mean, it's also really hard work to work <laughs> with the land, but it provides such a huge community too because you're not only doing it by yourself. They it's a community of like your relatives doing this together. I think there was a, a city planner um, at, I went to school at, at University of Alaska Fairbanks. So Fairbanks is like a city of 50,000 people, very small. But um, I had a friend whose father was like the city planner. I didn't know that that was a thing. <laughs> so I, I was just like, oh, that's really interesting. Like that, that is like a job that you can have because I had no, no one in my community had, like didn't know anyone that did urban planning. And that's not really something that you'd do in Alaska. I went to school in China, and I thought that that experience of seeing so many different ways that you can live in like such a like big urban environment was 
really interesting. And then when I came back, I lived in this sustainable village, which was the concept of it is like really focused on building these uh, super uh, efficient homes that were actually, uh, um, there are prototypes that where they would test the materials of the building and, or the houses, and then they would use, if it worked really well, they would use that in a lot of rural communities if, because it helps cut down like the, the cost. So it was actually a program that was with the Coal Climate Housing Research Center in Alaska and um, the university. So I got involved in that. I lived in the uh, one of the prototypes the very first year that they had built it. And it was built by students and then ran by students. And we worked with uh, planning students from Arizona State. And I think just through that experience, I was really fascinated about how do you how do you build around, um, you know, without cutting trees down or like what are the most efficient ways? Because it, it does cost so much more. And um, like, how can you make make these methods as efficient as possible in a place that's like a very harsh Arctic environment. Yeah, so I that's kind of how I ended up studying planning, <laughs> actually. And then transportation, I had always liked biking. It was like a way when I first moved to Fairbanks on my like I was 18, like the I only brought a bike to get around and you can use a bike basically to get all over. Um, the city and around campus. And at the time, like fat biking wasn't a thing yet, but people were biking in the middle of winter. And I always thought that was really interesting to see that like, you know, students would just commute by by bike. And, and like, I think a lot of a lot of these areas have uh, relationships with each other. So obviously, like thinking about my interest in, in the environment and knowing that you can, you know, reduce your footprint by by biking and doing all these things and then and then realizing that people actually travel by by bike like very long distances was just like I think how I ended up in in transportation and finding ways to, you know, increase those opportunities. I'm curious about what uh, you have uh, learned from the programs in Alaska um, that you have carried into your current uh, work and uh, what are the adaptations you have to make in this new environment so it can like the landscape and uh, the city design of a salt lake um, is very different. Uh, I imagine, you know, uh, those in Alaska. So uh, what have you carried um, on to your job uh, in terms of um, urban planning and what are the adaptations you have? I think a lot of it is, yeah, salt, like the Salt Lake Valley and the Wasatch Front is um, very urbanized. So it's, it's, very different from I guess the the environment in Alaska where like the planning the kinds of planning that you're doing is it's just like such a different scale um you know some of the projects that I worked on was like working with communities to develop resilience plans and 
and and that involved you know working with communities where their literal homes were be, being swept away by by ocean, the ocean because of erosion and climate change and um, we have those issues here I, and I think I think one of the challenges here is that it it's like not as trans or it doesn't seem as pertinent to to people so that's something that I think I you know I try to be mindful of when we and there's I guess there's like things like you know you do air quality conformity studies and all these things when you are planning but yeah just like thinking about the the communities that are also most um, impacted or disproportionately impacted um, like I said in those in those stories in Alaska like that that kind of planning is very different and some of the studies like where it involved transportation it was like you know transportation is sometimes or has been historically bifur you know it's bifurcated a lot of communities so being mindful of of that and and also realizing that like even though that's happened historically it's still happening in in some of these in like the planning that is taking place so it's a very western <laughs> so I, I think one of the things i always think about is like urban planning is a very western form of mindset and um, the way that we plan things, you know, it's it's a lot of it is coming from theory that people developed in Europe and, you know, like the United States at the turn of the 19th century. But just being mindful that there's a lot of ways you can view like how planning should be. And unfortunately, we work in a system within a system that that currently exists and and it's very hard to kind of change that. So be trying to be like advocates for for people that don't necessarily have are not part of the process sometimes or or haven't been in the past and being like just like recognizing that there's a lot of people that may be left out is something that I just think of often. Um are there any like uh, maybe concept or um, principles of uh, relating to the environment or relating to the land uh, in like Philippine culture that might be uh, you know integrated into um, modern urban planning that's deeply rooted in European theories. Oh, that's a good point. I haven't thought about it that that much. Um, yeah, I would have to do a little bit more research on on like like I have my family like my family's history and kind of that knowledge from from that. But I haven't. I would say I'm like pretty ignorant on on like a broad from like a broader context. And I know that um, in Philippine tradition, it's like the relationship to the land, at least from from the conversations I've had with family members and relatives, it's really like orally based discussions and nothing is really like written down. And it can also vary from from person to person. But a lot of it is really, yeah, like I think from my family's perspective, just taking what is enough for yourself and providing for um, your family and really nothing more is 
is what I I know. I don't have yeah, that that's a really interesting question because it would be really cool to explore some of those concepts. Maybe I'm not a planner, but while I was listening to you, I was thinking maybe like a the understanding that people should not control, right? So people should not dominate uh, the environment. Maybe a guiding principle in urban planning as well. Like, should we let the cars dominate <laughs> the city? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe not. So maybe uh, more trails and like um, more walkable, more bikeable city. Yeah, and I definitely think that some of those some like principles exist, and some of that thinking within planning now, and I guess it has in the past, but. Yeah, it's really hard when you are working. These are the thoughts, but then also having to work with, you know, what happens with, with you know, big big corporation like thought of like big corporations behind who maybe push for certain agendas. I don't know. <laughs> it's complicated, but but yeah, I I think that there is definitely more ways that we can be out closer to nature even having like better access to parks and trails and any community is a lot of it is kind of thought of afterwards can you talk a little bit about how salt lake city's grid system changes the way you might think about planning in the city and it's it's great for if you're thinking or talking about it from like a planning perspective because like there's great connectivity. It actually helps people get around faster, um, better for people who walk and bike. But when you think about, like, yeah, from a natural standpoint, like, it is very unnatural to have, like, a grid system because the shapes that we've created in the natural world is just, like, yeah, more um, more waves or, you know, like, when you think of just, like, it's not natural to have like straight lines, <laughs> basically. <laughs> I think there's a ton of challenges. Um, right now, we know that Utah is one of the fastest growing states in the country. So, and a lot of people are coming here because they know that we have a great quality of life, including myself. I mean, I came here to visit you know, like seven years ago and I was like, you know, if there's another place I could live, it would be. Utah. (laughs) And I found myself here years later. Yeah, I think that growth is a challenge uh, that you'll hear often and people will want to come here because of interest in reconnecting with nature. So balancing like the needs of, of people and also preserving what we have so that we don't necessarily take advantage of it is just a tough um, act. So uh, there's a lot it's, I think that can be done in terms of, you know, a lot of it is focused on the Wasatch Front, but we also have the Ochre Mountains and all these other natural resources and even like expanding regional parks. Those are, I think, some things that we can do to uh, alleviate some of these um, issues because the problems that we have, the things that people don't like, the congestion, the traffic, the amount of people from wherever they come from. 
those are those are kinds of comments and things that will not go away but what we can do is is find additional opportunities so finding additional ways for people like like traffic is always going to be here but if you give people the opportunities to use transit make transit better make biking or walking better you give people options and i think that'll help speaking of biking can you talk about your work with the radical adventure riders so yeah i think that we we have a group here in Utah, we actually are hoping that we can become a, a chapter that's formal, <laughs> uh, formally recognized by like the larger organization, and uh, hoping that we can organize more rides and events. And I think that'll probably happen, um, especially with just the amount of biking that's been happening in the last year, people trying to get outside and lots of new riders. So I'm, I'm just really, really excited because it's just a great way for people to get outside in, in nature and enjoy. Yeah, and then actually Kevin and I were just um, part of this uh, Westside Leadership Institute. Um, and then it's that program is focused on residents and community members that want to uh, be advocates and like, you know, connect opportunities for community organizations and um, and just, yeah, like cultivate leaders in, in the west side of Salt Lake. Uh, so we were in that program and as part of the program, you develop these different projects. Uh, our project was actually trying to find funding to develop a pump track on the west side. There is one right now like on the nine line and you're probably familiar with it. And it's really awesome. It's just like a great uh, community space and this city working with our, you know different community members and um, organizations developed this pump track and and yeah it was like really driven by a lot of people that were passionate about biking and increasing uh, those kinds of spaces and it was it's actually built under like a bridge of I-15 so you're utilizing the space underneath so it's great because it stays dry for most of the year but uh, we're hoping that we get a pump track developed in um, Rose Park, and we actually just found out yesterday that uh, we helped put in with the city, uh, put in a grant for um, the Office of Outdoor Recreation, and they just funded it. <laughs> so it's really cool. We'll have to see if, yeah, there'll, there'll be more things coming down the way. It's not going to be built anytime soon, but we'll see. Thank you, Nikki, so much for sharing your stories uh, with us, and thank you all for tuning in. Uh, in the next episode, you will meet Prashanti Nimbu. Prashanti Nimbu is a member of the Nimbu clan, as her last name suggests. She was born and grew up in Nepal. She's currently a junior in environmental studies at Westminster College. 
And thanks to the Whiting Foundation Public Engagement Programs for supporting the project with a seed grant. Thank you all for joining us for another episode of the Mountain Stories podcast. Uh, you can find links to upcoming rides in the Radical Adventure Riders series at our website, podcast.mountainresearch.org. You can also find previous episodes there if you want to check them out. Uh, in the meantime, uh, thank you to Shomei for inviting us to be involved in this project. Thanks to Westminster College. Thanks to Jeff Nichols as my co-director. We are located on the lands of the Ute, the Shoshone, and the Goshute peoples here in Salt Lake City. Finally, thanks to Pixie and the Party Grass Boys for our theme music. Thank you all very much. We'll see you next time.